Tonight's Bible reading is from John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. Uh, You can find it on page 871 of the Bibles in front of you. That's John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I have said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptising in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to see him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Hello again, friends. Please do have John chapter 10 open in front of you. I generally think it's better in a hard copy, but if you want to use it on your phone, that could be just as helpful for you as well. But do have something, because we're going to explore this passage, explore in a more thematic way today, Uh, but hopefully as we engage with it, uh, you'll be shaped into the likeness of Christ, and we'll see what it is he's having to say to us. Before we do, I'm going to pray. Our good and your gracious God, we thank you for your word. We always thank you for your word because it is good, uh, and it is helpful. And we pray tonight as we open it, that Holy Spirit, you will be at work. You'll be calling us to your Son, the Son, the Lord Jesus, and that my words will be yours. In this we pray. Amen. Now in our life, in our day-to-day, we have a whole bunch of expectations about things. We have hopes, we have dreams, uh, and there's a lot of subconscious things that we expect to happen. Now, we need to have the right expectations about things, or if something happens uh, that are kind of outside those expectations, uh, we get really upset. Uh, I don't know if you can think about something particular in your life. To give you a bit of a, uh, a funny or silly example, or maybe it's not silly. Does anyone here like reading? You're not silly if you like reading. <laughs> but when we read a book, sometimes those books are put into a movie, say like Harry Potter or something like that, now, if you love Harry Potter, the book, and then you thought about it becoming a movie, you probably got super excited about that, but at the same time you're getting super excited, you get a little bit nervous. 
uh, because you don't want the movie to kind of squash your hopes and your dreams, your expectations about what the movie uh, should be about. Because the way that you've interpreted the book has given you a set of ideas and you expect those things to be played out. When our hopes and dreams are dashed, we really feel it, react against it. Now perhaps you have a whole set of expectations around Jesus. A whole set of things about you think about how he should be or shouldn't be, about the church, this, that, uh, or the other. Some of those things are met. Some of those things are challenged. And some of that is really opposite to who Jesus is and what we talk about. We delve into that world tonight. What we're looking at in John chapter 10 here as we extend out of the Good Shepherd passage is we get into a conversation. We get into a conversation between, Jew, between Jesus and some Jews who are really not too sure about him. They have a whole set of expectations about who they think Jesus is or should be, and they get to this point and they're like, I'm not so sure about Jesus. I'm not so sure about him. And perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're questioning or doubting or investigating or, or unsure. Perhaps you have friends who are like that. And what we're going to see tonight is what it looks like to engage with those kind of questions and then see how it is that Jesus responds to those things. As we work through the passage, we'll get a picture of Jesus is questioned and then he answers those questions and then there's a response to that question. And then as Christians, as we read it, we then see how it is we should respond uh, in light of that. So with that, let's jump into John chapter 10. Now, John chapter 10 is literally right in the middle of the Gospel of John. Uh, and in a sense, it's the final bit of the first half. And there's this, been this tension that is growing in the Gospel of John. The people who are following Jesus and the people who are hating Jesus is rising. Both of them are rising almost at the same time, it seems. And there's this real tension there's a tension in the narrative uh, that has been bubbling up between the word Jesus and the world, people who are uh, against him. It's also set in a particular occasion, a particular time. When Hannah had it read before, you would have heard her say it was the festival of dedication. Now, if you look in your Bibles, you'll see a little footnote, and it will probably say that is Hanukkah. Anyone heard of Hanukkah? Now, when I think of Hanukkah, I think immediately of the holiday armadillo from Friends. Right? That's where my mind goes. Maybe I'm millennial and that's what we were watching Friends when we were growing up. But this Ross desperately trying to convince his friend, uh, his son, to uh, take up the Jewish traditions. Now, the festival of dedication has nothing to do with that. But it is set in history. Uh, it is set um, at a time where they're celebrating but also expecting. So to give you a little bit of history, about 150 years before Jesus, 167 BC, this Greek ruler named, oh, doesn't matter, I'll stuff it up. He invades Judah and he overtakes the temple, right? He doesn't destroy the temple, but he like chucks pigs in it and he makes them to sacrifices to Zeus. This makes some of the Jews rise up and revolt. And there's a key guy named Judas Maccabees. And what he does is basically they have a victory and then they, they drive out the Greeks and they rededicate the temple. And this rededication of the temple is this festival. 
So they're celebrating. They're celebrating this Messiah-like figure who's come and liberated them. However, all the kind of Old Testament prophecies that they're expecting did not come about. Not all of them. And they're still under the oppression of the Romans when it comes to this scene. So when you read verse 24, and the question is posed to Jesus, this question is full of political overtones. It's full of this kind of Old Testament expectation. And it's in that context that we get our conversation. The Jews ask a question, Jesus answers, and there's a response. So Jesus walks amongst them. He's amongst the temple. He's amongst the people. The people who are hating him, he's amongst them. Allowing them to ask his question, their questions. And so they ask, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Messiah, just tell us plainly. Like, please, Jesus, just tell us. If you like, look at the Greek, it's literally like they're saying, Jesus, you're killing me. You're killing me. Just let me know if you are the Messiah. Are you going to deliver us, Jesus? Are you going to get rid of the Romans? I've got this expectation about who I think this Messiah is. And Jesus, you're not it. You're doing half of it. But not all the way. So their overriding question that they're asking is, I'm not really sure about you, Jesus. Who are you? Can I actually trust you? Now, Jesus doesn't run from those questions. He doesn't run from that kind of accusation. He actually embraces it. He he embraces it in a measured yet direct way. Now, it kind of sounds a little bit indirect what he does. He basically says, well, I've already told you so. He says in verse 25, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, uh, and they, I know them, and they follow me. Jesus is saying, let's not focus about my title. Look at what I do. Look at my works. Look at how I act. Look at how I teach. Look at how I behave. Let that inform you. And when he talks about his works, he's talking literally about those things. He's teaching his miracles. He's fed the 5,000. He's healed the blind. He's talked about himself. He's saying those things are going to confirm I'm the Messiah. Look at my works. It'd be like in our day if uh, we all have internet in our homes and say the internet breaks down. The MBN is not working. And someone rocks up to your house. uh, And for whatever reason, they don't tell you who they are, but they're dressed in the NBN gear. They got their tools, they know where the stuff is, and they go and they fix your MBN stuff. Now, even if, and your internet sucks working again, even if they didn't say, I'm from the MBN, you would go, well, from all the stuff you've done, you're clearly an MBN technician, you fixed my internet. This is like what Jesus is saying, look at what I do, they're confirming who I am. And Jesus' message here is that through my works, my sheep have believed me. Now, that's going back to what we spoke about last week. But the people who are listening to Jesus, people who are following him, they see his works and they trust. The followers of Jesus know that Jesus is the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life. He kind of continues on that train with the sheep, and he says, for my sheep, they get a gift, and then he gives the reason for the gift and then the security. And that's what he goes on to in verse 28. I give them, this is the sheep, the followers of Jesus, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. 
No one can snatch them from my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, if you're a Christian, that is a beautiful promise. And if you're not a Christian, I hope that that's an inspiring one that could be yours. The gift of eternal life, of life to the full, as what we were looking at last week, of all the things that Jesus has been speaking about, it's not just a hopeful maybe thing. It's 100%. It is sure. And why is it 100%? Because it is the Father's doing. It says uh, the Father's hand is all over it. The Father gives the Son his sheep. Literally, God's gift to Jesus, and no one is greater than God. No one is greater than the Father. You can't um, overcome it in any way, shape, or form. His gift is, the sh- is us to Jesus, his sheep. Now, it's kind of a bit easy. We could like, pass over that for a moment and um, not really un- appreciate the, the relevance of that truth. But what do you think that means for your Monday morning? The fact that you are Jesus' sheep, that the Father has chosen you, that no one can snatch you from Jesus or the Father's hand. What does that mean for you on Wednesday afternoon? On Saturday night at a party? You think about for a minute that you are the Father's gift to Jesus. Like that is a, That's a crazy thought. That is mind-boggling in a way. And it says a huge amount about your worth and your value. A huge amount about your worth and your value. Because Christian, you are immensely valuable because the Father has chosen you. Now that might come as a bit of a surprise, but it's hard to take if uh, because of all sorts of reasons, your view of yourself, your self-worth doesn't allow for that. Or maybe you've grown up in this kind of reformed tradition of Christianity and we've read from the Bible, we've learned and engaged, we're sinners and in a sense corrupt. And yes, that is true, but that's not the whole story. God has chosen his sheep, and the sheep have chosen to follow him, and he looks on us with love and with beauty. Then you know the classic saying, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Your beauty is because God is beholding you. He looks at you and says, you are worthy. You have value. Our worth and our value doesn't come from within It doesn't come from our sense of self. It doesn't come from what even others say about us. Our value comes because God looks at us with his eyes and says, you, my child, are valuable. That is where our worth comes from. That is the opinion that matters. That is the opinion that defines our worth and our value and can help prevent us from spiraling into ungodly anxiety. You, Christian, are immensely valuable because God has chosen you to be that. Hold on to that on your Monday morning, your Wednesday afternoon, Saturday at a party. That is where your value comes from. Now, nevertheless, that is not necessarily encouraging nor inspiring for the Jews. It actually makes them really, really angry. It enrages them. And they go and reject Jesus as a result. You ever read verse 31 and they say they pick up stones, they want to kill him. They want to kill him for saying that. And so then now we get into the second part of the conversation. Again, the Jews have some questions. Jesus has some answers, and they're going to respond. Jesus' initial response is to the fact that they've picked up some stones uh, to kill him. And Jesus says, quite clever, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which of these do you stone me for? They're like, we're not stoning you because you're doing any good work, but for blasphemy. 
because you're claiming to be, you're a mere man but claiming to be God. Their second question is along the lines of, you surely can't be God. No way. Prove it. Really, you're God? That's ridiculous. And then that sets Jesus off in this kind of logical argument, uh, saying, well, what I've said is actually inconsistent with Scripture. But then he gets to verse 37 and says this. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. And again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Jesus is saying, sure, you might not like what I have to say, but look at what I do. Look at my works and judge me on that. Let that be your pursuit. Explore what I have to say. Look at the evidence. Look, you'll find answers. I might not be what you've constructed in your head. I'm not going to be this man-made, messiah-like figure that you think I will be, but I'm going to be something greater, something far greater than you can even imagine. Look at me. Look at what I've done. And then you get the response to him. The Jews, in, some of the Jews, in this case, they want to seize him. They still want to go out and kill him. Jesus gets away. But then at the end of the passage, you've got this whole other set of people. They're following Jesus. They're believing in him. And we have those two kind of responses. And that naturally makes us ask of ourselves, what are the questions that we have? What would we go to Jesus and perhaps accuse him of or ask him or be curious about? What are our questions? Because the Jews, they were concerned about Jesus' claim to be God. That might not be your concern. They wanted a military political warrior. You, You might not have that expectation about Jesus. We're typically going to have quite different questions, but no less valuable, no less important, and in many cases, very fair, very valid, genuine questions. What are they for you? Do they come to your mind? What are the things that block you or prevent you from coming to Jesus? Uh, There's a wonderful Christian female author named uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, and she's written this book called Confronting Christianity. And in it, it's got 12 hard questions for the world's largest religion. And I want to read these questions for you. They'll be up on the screen. They might resonate with you in some way. These are the things that block people, that maybe block you from engaging in Christianity, following Jesus. Number one, aren't we just better off without religion? Like, like what's the point? Like, can't we just thrive on our own? Why do we even need Jesus? Second question, doesn't Christianity just crush diversity? Fair question that people can ask. Racism, gender identity, all these kind of things. Is Jesus and his way about crushing that? How can you say there's only one truth? We live in a very postmodern world. Truth is relative. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. How can there be this universal claim? It seems to just be against everything that is Uh, in our world? How can we say that there is only one way? A fourth question could be, doesn't religion hinder morality? Like, can't I just be good without God? Five, doesn't religion cause violence? 9-11, Hitler, the Crusades, all these kind of things, doesn't religion create that? Why would I want to be part of that? What's Jesus? How is he going to provide anything better? Number six, how can... You take the Bible literally. 
How can you actually trust what we read here? How can we actually trust the Gospels? How can we trust that Jesus did what he did, said what he said, died on the cross, rose again, literally? I don't know. Can you trust that? Seventh question, hasn't Christianity, hasn't science disproved Christianity? You may think, man, surely we've moved on from this by now. Surely science has shown us we don't need religion to explain away things anymore. How could we believe in God the Creator and yet um, mesh that with science? Maybe it's this one. Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Has the church just been promoting patriarchy? Maybe you feel it still does that. What's all this business of equal but different? It just seems like the church, from your experience, may be denigrating of women, and that has been a blocker. Maybe number nine that she wrote is, isn't Christianity homophobic? Why can't love just be love? What's all the commentary on marriage and sexuality and all these kind of things? Number 10, maybe a more American context, but still relevant to us today. Doesn't the Bible condone slavery? Racism, slavery, social inequality. What does the Bible have to say about that? Is of any relevance to these conversations? Number 11 could be super close to home as well. How could a loving God allow such suffering? How could a loving God allow evil? Maybe that would be the first question you want to ask of Jesus that you confront him on. Pain, evil in the world, how could that be happening if there's a loving God? And the last one that she had was, how can a loving God send people to hell? If God is truly loving, surely he wouldn't send people to hell. Do any of those questions resonate with you? They're fair questions. They're appropriate questions that you may ask. Maybe you're sitting here going, man, that was a pretty dark kind of journey. But these are questions that you may genuinely have. Maybe even as you're following Jesus, some of them are still your questions. Can I say, friends, there are answers to these things. There may be a real journey you need to go on. This book that she written is answering those exact 12 questions. She wrote another book, which is this one, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask. It's the same kind of thing, but in more teenager, young adult kind of language and context. This sermon isn't about answering those questions. Except for me to say, I recognize and we recognize these are genuine questions that people have. You need to go on a journey. And we want to help you in that journey. Come alongside you, help you as you investigate what it looks like to question Jesus, to get to know him, to investigate his claims, to see really, is he king, Lord, Messiah? Does he have an actual claim on my life? Does Jesus actually bring meaning? You can look at the Bible, you can look at these books, there's, whole, there's a whole range of stuff. You can also engage in looking at the testimonies of other Christians. What will be your response? The thrust of this passage is that Jesus is having a conversation with people who are going, I'm not too sure about Jesus. They question him and they want to reject him. Yet Jesus, he doesn't kick him to the curb. He doesn't say, all right, on your bike, see you later. You're looking to kill me? No, he engages with them. He listens, he answers. I just want you to pick up again on verse 38. It's an invitation. He's saying, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. He's saying, investigate me. I'm here. And his people ask, we want to help you along that journey. Friends, that invitation is again before you today.
The invitation is always there. But Jesus is saying, come and believe in him. Come and follow him. Take up the invitation. Chat with someone. If you want, you can write it on the SMS card at the end of the night. We'll follow. We'd love to have a chat with you, follow you up. You want to continue in reading the Bible yourself and engaging in some of these books and things like that. We want to help you in that process. What will be your response? But for the Christian, maybe you're like, okay, Matt, this is nice. I'm... I've been following Jesus for 30 years now. (laughs) Maybe some of those questions did resonate with you in some way. You want to continue to investigate them. Uh, I trust that God's word has been helpful for you. But I also want to point out something else from this passage. And that's that direct calling to continue to investigate him. But there was a lot of talk about Jesus and the Father. Uh, Seven times, in fact, in this passage, and there's this, in the Gospel of John, it is this huge theme of the relationship between the Father and the Son, and then later on we see, and the Holy Spirit. Have you heard the saying, uh, like Father, like Son? Pretty kind of common saying that we have. Uh, Now, I apparently look a lot like my dad. So if I, (laughs) when we were a bit younger, actually, when dad looked a bit younger, actually, (laughs) we'd we'd walk around with... My mom and dad and I, and people would say, oh, you're out with your two sons, because we looked like brothers. Sorry, dad, but I love you. But we look the same. We look very similar. But maybe it's mannerisms that you have with people. You might see a mother and a daughter, and you look at the daughter, you're like, man, that daughter's acting so much like their mom. Or a, a son does the same thing as their father. In a literal sense, someone's a, the dad's a mechanic, and the son be, becomes a mechanic. This has very much been the defining element of Jesus' ministry. Not he's a mechanic, but like father and like son, Jesus only does what he sees the father doing. So like knowing, watching who Jesus is, is like knowing and watching the father. And an element that has been present throughout the whole gospel of John, and I'll pause on that, I want to pause on this for, for a moment here, that we haven't really touched on, is the relationship that the two of them have. Now, I did probably the hardest assignment of my life looking at the Trinity, trying to understand the relationships between the Father and the Son. It was mind-boggling. It was incredibly inspiring at the same time. But there is something so clear in the Gospel of John that we can learn about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Because what we read is that God is both a sent and a sending God. God is both a sent and a sending God. In the Gospel of John, 24 times we read in some way, shape or another that the Father or the Son is a sent and a sending God. That is the central, one of the central ways that they relate to one another. Sent and sending. The Father sends the Son. And then later we read in the Gospel and in other parts of the Bible that the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. Now in church, we read the Bible because... This is God's word. And what, something that we consistently see again and again is that we're called as Christians to become in the likeness of Jesus. So if you want to be in the Father's will and continuing to follow in the way of the Holy Spirit, he's calling us to become like Jesus, being one who is sent. Makes it very clear in the Gospel of John in particular. And then to make it really clear for us, after Jesus rose again, John chapter 20, verse 21, he rose from the dead, he appears to his disciples, and he says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. 
Friends, if you're a Christian, then you are sent. You are sent, just like Jesus. It's not just for our missionary friends that go to Europe and Asia and North Africa. It is them. But it's also us. All of us are sent people. Now, in the context of this passage, what we're sent to do is continue the conversations with our brothers and sisters, well, our, our friends in, in the local neighborhood, uh, in our workplaces, wherever it may be. Continuing that invitation, continuing the work of Jesus uh, and the invitations that he has to follow him as Lord and Savior. And we have that central verse in 1 Peter 3, 15, which says, Always be ready to give an answer to the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. Friends, you don't need to know the answer to every question, but know your own story. Know why it is that you believe, why it is that you have confidence in, uh, to follow Jesus. And then journey with people in their questions and their answers. I certainly in depth don't know the answer to all those 12 questions or perhaps the question you have, but I want to walk beside you. And all of us, that's what we want to be doing. So brothers and sisters, the response to this passage is know that you, like Jesus, are sent. You want to be like Jesus? Know that you're a sent person and continue the invitation. Now, to make it that a little bit more concrete, I want to ask you a, or have a question that you can ask of yourself and ask other ones of our brothers and sisters. Now, when I say the question, it's going to sound incredibly formal and a little bit like, oh, I don't know if I'd ever say that. But stick with it. It's a question that will change your perspective. Now, when you meet someone for the first time, what do you ask them? Generally, something along the lines of, what's your name? Who are you? Where do you live? What do you do? Good questions. Keep asking those questions. They're very fine and appropriate. But let me tell you a very peculiar, very Christian question to ask. Ask yourself, ask others, to whom have you been sent? To whom have you been sent? Literally. Who were the neighbours? Who were the colleagues? Who were the university groups, the social groups, the sports teams, the mothers groups, the, the family that you're a part of? These places, these people, God has placed you there. We believe in a sovereign God, right? A sovereign God who is in and all things. Now, of course we have free will, but God is sovereign. And if we believe that, then you can be confident that God knows exactly where you are and has a wonderful purpose for him carrying out his mission through you. It is not purely by chance that you live, that you work, that you play in the places that you do. So ask yourself, ask one another, to whom have you been sent? Perhaps you want to write down the name, the places, the people, Maybe you want to think, just want to reorientate your mind, think of yourself as someone who is sent, adjusting your perspective. Who are those people? Who has God called you to be his presence in that place? To continue to have the conversations, to continue the work uh, that Jesus called us to, to invite people to know, repent, and to follow him. To whom have you been sent? Because we follow a sent and ascending God. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you're a sent and ascending God. Thank you that you sent Jesus. That he came, he lived a life, and he engaged with people who loved him and he engaged with people who hated him. He engaged with people who wanted to kill him. 
and then allowed those people to kill him on the cross and then rise again in victory for us to bring about your kingdom. Father, I pray for all of us that are investigating you who are not so sure. By your spirit and by your people, please help us to gather alongside one another. May you make yourself known. Please continue to call people to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.